0: Okay, let's uh, start a little bit. Um, one of the things I find, always find interesting to do with Marx is to, uh, you know, work on the theoretical angle, uh, but then have in mind uh, some end point uh, that uh, one can get to to try to do what he says he wants to do, which is to bring the theory to the surface uh, to the point where it can explain uh, what is going on uh, in daily life uh, around us. And uh, the aspect of daily life that uh, uh, intrigues me right now uh, are uh, issues about uh, regional development and what I would call the formation of uh, uh, regional uh, valley regimes. Uh, so I want to talk about that and talk about how one might get from the diagram and visualization of general circulation which we began with to the point of uh, being able to interpret something of what is going on in terms of uh, these region- the formation and dissolution and reconfiguration uh, of these regional valley regimes. Now, uh, there is a long history of this. Uh, I think one of the more interesting books about uh, uh, North American economic history is by Douglas North, who talks about region and section a lot, and effectively suggests that uh, in the 19th century, uh, the United States was not one uh, nation, country, or whatever you want to call it, Uh, It was in fact uh, a whole series of regional economies, uh, many of which were uh, in the process of evolving distinctively in their own particular ways, uh, not in very close relation with each other, and that uh, there was therefore a kind of centrifugal force always at work uh, in American economic history. Uh, which was uh, some sort of uh, separatism could set in, but at the same time uh, there were relations between uh, these uh, regional economies. Uh, In a sense, uh, I I would interpret the 1930s as a a moment when (coughs) the regionalization of the uh, American economy became a problem and uh, as a result uh, we began to see the knitting together of the various regions into a much more unified structure uh, through many of the federal programs and interventions that occurred uh, during the 1930s and then of course during the 1940s you have the interstate highway system uh, and uh, the uh, really strong attempt to develop Uh, the American South in a different kind of way, and of course the American West, which had been um, sort of an open frontier for capital accumulation, uh, uh, earlier became a very significant uh, center uh, for for further capital accumulation, particularly since it was so significant during World War II and the Pacific, Pacific War. So what you see, however, is the evolution of these regional uh, systems, and the evolution uh, has uh, various forms of uh, crisis attached to it. So by the time you get to the 1980s, you will find a language which is very familiar uh, in the popular press and everywhere else where people were talking about the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt. And everybody seemed to know what people meant by that, and everybody understood it. What's interesting right now is we don't hear that language used so much anymore, Uh, partly because most of the rust has been polished off. A large part of the rust belt and other things have begun to happen, and uh, uh, some of the sun belt has gone a little rusty. But but nevertheless, uh, at that time, in the 1980s, there was a definite sense that the Rust Belt was in crisis; that regional system was in crisis, uh, whereas um, you know, the American South was not. Uh, so that again we have uh, a, a notion of crisis, which is not uh, stuck in, in, if you like, a generalized crisis, but which is a regional crisis, which has huge impacts uh, through the deindustrialization. Uh, of uh, much of the uh, Northeast and Midwest uh, during this uh, during this period, um, and so if you look at the world, uh, you would actually see many regional var- varieties of this sort. Uh, Gramsci, of course, struggled all the time with how to integrate uh, an understanding of uh, northern Italy with uh, what was going on in the Italian uh, South. Uh, and uh, effectively saw these as two completely different uh, labor regimes and class regimes and and, and even cultural regimes. Uh, And yet uh, they were all supposed to be part of uh, what Italy was about and of course the migration streams and relations between them. Uh, But to this day uh, that distinction still exists. And in uh, Germany, uh, you know, the distinction between Hanover and Bavaria or the Ruhr and Bavaria is very strong. Uh, And uh, you have demands also for autonomy in Catalonia and you have it in Scotland. So you just go around and you kind of see all of these uh, different areas of capital accumulation, uh, which relate to each other in some way and are linked together, uh, if you like. Um, and it raises for me the question of uh, is, it, is it possible to talk about a variety of value regimes instead of talking about just one single uh, regime of value. Now Marx tended uh, to talk uh, as if there were one single regime. Uh, and the tendency in the Marxist tradition has never been to say, well, we can actually disaggregate uh, value into you know regional value regimes. Um, in fact, uh, there's a deep sort of resistance uh, to that for uh, a variety of, of reasons. But it did seem to me that we have to find some way to get from the general dynamics of the circulation of capital to uh, the uh, uh, the existence of these. Uh, Uh, geographical configurations, these spatial configurations. And one of the ways in which uh, it seemed to me useful to start to go about this is to go back to the way Marx uh, talked about uh, the value theory and derived the value theory in the first instance. And I think here it's always important to remind yourself that Marx never started from an idea. He always started from a material practice and that material practice was then analyzed and understood uh, and through that analysis and that understanding uh, some sort of general theoretical conclusions were reached uh, which uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier on in last time uh, there is a, then the question is how does this uh, general law of capital accumulation assert itself uh, in this case, in space and time, and in what ways does it assert itself that can actually help explain what is going on in these regional and interregional uh, dynamics and the kinds of things we might, uh, uh, we might look for. So this is, uh, if you know, part of what uh, I want to l- look at today. Uh, but in looking at it, then going back to the very origin, uh, Marx uh, says that he wants to look at the act of exchange that's the act with which he starts, the exchange of commodities. And he dissects that and comes up with the notion of use value, exchange value, and and value, and, and, and so on. But that exchange occurs in a particular institutional context, and the institutional context is that of private property, of individuals. Uh, of uh, what he calls a reciprocal uh, dependence where everybody is dependent on each other but independent of, e- of each other uh, as, as individuals, uh, but is also uh, shaped by, the, by uh, the ideal of a perfectly competitive uh, capitalist economy. In other words, perfect competition uh, is assumed And throughout Marx's capital, many places, both in capital and the Grundrisse, Marx comments about what competition is for, Uh, in his view, competition does not create the laws of value. It enforces the laws of value. And it is as an enforcer that uh, Marx uh, looks upon it, Um, and so... Uh, the derivation of uh, the law of value uh, in the first few chapters of capital is predicated on the existence of an enforcement mechanism, uh, which is that of perfect competition. But if we start immediately to question the uh, the issue of, uh, is there perfect competition in society, uh, then of course uh, we kind of say, well no there is not. And there have been various times when people have talked about alternatives to perfect competition, and those alternatives often carry with it the obligation to start to talk about uh, an alternative value theory. Uh, This uh, is true, for example, in the case of Paul Sweezy and Baran and Sweezy when they were writing about monopoly capital in the 1960s. Uh, In that text they said, well, capital was once upon a time competitive. In the 19th century when Marx was writing, it was competitive. Uh, and uh, but uh, then along came the corporations and the corporations became more, more significant and uh, eventually we approached a situation where uh, monopoly is the order of the day and therefore we have an era of monopoly capital uh, which, uh, and they were very direct about this, demands an alternative value theory. Uh, that is there have to be some serious modifications of the value theory to take account of monopoly. Now, one of the things that I have, with, uh, objections I have to, to Sweezy's uh, kind of uh, setting it up this way is the idea that capital was once uh, perfectly, re- it was reasonable to consider capital as being perfectly competitive. Because in the 1920s, there were a whole series of uh, discussions uh, over something called monopolistic competition. And monopolistic competition was characteristically spatial competition. And spatial competition, uh, if it is monopolistic competition, is not perfect competition. Now why do we call it, call spatial competition monopolistic competition? It's monopolistic in the sense that uh, I occupy a particular place. I'm at this desk. Uh, I have a unique location at this desk, and if I'm competing with others, then I'm competing over a certain space. Now how big is that space over which uh, I'm obliged to compete? Uh, And in the 19th century, when transport costs were extremely high, most local producers were very much protected uh, against competition so that uh, if you were brewing beer or or baking bread or something like that, you were even protected from competition uh, from uh, the next town over. Uh, And since you were the only brewer or baker in town, uh, you could uh, monopoly price uh, your your bread and your beer and, 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 and the like. Now, the level of of monopolistic competition depends very much on the nature of the commodity. I mentioned sort of bread and beer because they're, you know, those kinds of products where monopolistic competition makes sense. But if you look at spices, if you look at um, uh, gold or silver or something like that, then uh, transport costs do not have the same impact. On on those matters, you may account other forms of barriers to movement, which would, of course, be tariff barriers. Tariff barriers or tolls on highways and all the rest of it. And so the term laissez-faire comes from the 18th century, which is a French term which kind of said get rid of all of the tolls and bridge tolls and road tolls and so on, which were actually hindered free movement so that any hindrance to free movement then it creates monopoly spaces within which monopoly pricing can occur. So if you go back into the 19th century when transport costs were extremely high uh, what you then find is that monopolistic competition uh, was actually really pretty foundational for much of what was going on in terms of capital accumulation. But as I've suggested there are two Uh, features here, one are the human barriers through tolls and tariffs and all the rest of it, and the other is the spatial problem of the cost and time of movement. And that cost and time of movement has, over the history of capitalism, been reduced dramatically. Dramatically, of course, uh, during the 19th century with the coming of the railroads, (coughs) telegraph, things of this kind, uh, even information about prices, uh, became very significant uh, by the time the telegraph came, it was possible for when the uh, corn exchanges opened in uh, London or Liverpool that they would have available to them the prices in Odessa or in Buenos Aires and all the rest of it. So that information uh, was became much more freely available, and therefore monopoly pricing Uh, was less likely to happen when you knew what the price was in all those different parts of the world. So information became terribly important uh, at the same time as actually the capacity to move material goods and to move money around. So the improvements in transport and communications have actually made a great difference. And one of the big revolutions in transport and communications occurred in the 1960s, early 1970s uh, with containerization uh, so that uh, containerization uh, reduced the cost so that uh, you could then actually start to to create uh, industrial structures in which one part of the car was made in Brazil another part was made in Thailand, another part was was made in China and, and it was all assembled in Detroit. So, so you could do that kind of thing uh, but only after Uh, the actual uh, monopoly uh, situation of of special competition had been reduced by reductions of transport cost. At the same time of course we've seen uh, an incredible push mainly led by the United States uh, to reduce tariffs and to reduce uh, all impediments and, and barriers to trade so that again Since 1945, in particular, you had the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, organization that was systematically trying to negotiate the reductions of tariff barriers on a worldwide basis. This was then replaced by the WTO, which is a much more binding kind of agreement, uh, which is doing the same kind of things, and we've had all these different rounds, the Doha Round and all the rest of it, to try to uh, press this even, even further. So that uh, monopolistic competition uh, from the spatial standpoint uh, has become less and less significant. And for this reason there is less and less monopoly, I think, uh, available uh, from the standpoint of uh, actual uh, production uh, in, in, in space. Uh, However, that doesn't uh, get rid of monopoly, because it actually turns out the capitalists who are supposed to thrive on competition really love monopoly. And they do everything they can to monopolize. Uh, And uh, therefore, what we've seen in its place is the growth of of corporate monopolies and corporate uh, uh, monopolistic power. And this corporate mon- monopolistic power exists, however, in, in certain com- in com- configuration. And it was interesting to go back and read, uh, say, uh, Sweezy and Barron and Sweezy's book on Monopoly Capital, published in 1966. Because the characteristic monopoly uh, corporations at that time were the big three uh, auto-producers in Detroit. And they were monopolistic in the sense that they controlled a very large part uh, of the market and they could engage in these, they weren't exactly monopolists, but they could do price leadership and all this kind of thing. They were very familiar with what each other was doing. And to, to Baran and Sweetie, therefore, the, the, the big three in Detroit was a paradigm example of monopoly power uh, in motion. but notice something it was monopoly power within the United States market and only within the United States market and the interesting thing that this was also accompanied by the way in which actually the labor force was also protected from competition so that while capitalists were protected by high tariff barriers and and high transport costs So was the labor force protected against competition with other labor forces by high transport and labor costs and also by barriers to movement. And so, uh, interestingly, during this period of 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, a whole series of books came out which were talking about the concept of, for for instance, uh, the English working class, uh, the German working class, the French working class, the Italian working class, And in a sense, at that time, you would say that labor was rather protected from competition from other labor forces. That there was a certain kind of monopoly power that accrued to capital, but there was also a certain monopoly of power that accrued to labor. And of course, this then led to a situation in which the value regime of the United States was very much about, uh, was very much led by uh, a conflict between. Uh, the, the 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 sort of corporate capitalist big gun motor company auto companies and the like and and big labour so you had big capital and big labour kind of uh, uh, jostling with each other for privileges and power and you could say that during that period the United States formed a uh, a valley regime uh, which was to some degree confined by Uh, by its borders, by the protective aspects of its geographical position. But you could say the same about the British situation as well. That the British working class was uh, and I'm using British rather than English because, you know, there's an English side to it too but the British side is important. The British working class was likewise protected the only, th- only thing that was going on during this period which was weakening, if you like, the power of labor was, was migration. And it is a, is a fascinating point that capital at that time of uh, the late 1960s went out of its way to try to induce more and more migration to come into the country. I mean, you know, the kind of rhetoric we hear these days of keep them out you know, was absolutely not occurring at the time. The reform in this country of the Immigration Act of 1965 uh, brought uh, immigration uh, opportunities into into the United States that had not existed before. Uh, The Germans went out and recruited uh, Turkish uh, workers directly Uh, The French actually subsidized the bringing in of the Maghrebians and it was a French state subsidy to Maghrebian immigration. And all of this had to do with trying to weaken the power of labor by uh, importing immigrant workers to some degree to try to keep, uh, uh, as it were, invade the value regime and disrupt one of the conditions under which the value regime was, uh, was evolving. Of course, this produced certain uh, difficulties. Uh, In Britain, for example, drawing upon commonwealth labor, uh, a great deal of immigration was arranged and out of this came a very strong movement within some elements of the working class that wanted to protect their monopoly position by becoming pretty anti-immigrant. And, of course, this is the kind of thing you see now in the French working class. Many people who were in the Communist Party once have gone over to uh, Marie Le Pen. Uh, In Britain, uh, in the late 1960s, 1970s, uh, there was a conservative politician who sounded far, far worse than Trump. About, uh, you know, he basically talking about uh, rivers of blood that would flow in Britain if the immigration policies were continued. Uh, and he got a lot of, even though he was a conservative, he got a lot of working class uh, uh, support. So you have value regimes which were structured in a certain kind of way but they were very much built around the nation-state with nation-states in a sense uh, trying to figure out how to work their labor market, how to evolve their labor market, a very different characteristics in terms of states of class struggle and organized power and, and the like. Uh, but then if you, you you go to twenty years later, you see a completely different scene. You would not say the monopoly auto companies in the late 1980s were were the three big Detroit auto companies because you had the Japanese uh, you had the Germans uh, and you had uh, uh, soon after that uh, you know Koreans and now you 've got the chinese and 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 the like uh, nor would you say that uh, Big Pharma and all the rest of it is now you know, corporately bound by nation state boundaries. So in a sense what we've seen is a transformation of the value regime from one that was really tightly confined in nation states. With a great deal of variation, of <coughs> regimes within the nation states, as occurred in the United States, for example, and to some degree in Britain and, and many countries in Europe. So you see these these configurations, and these configurations uh, are actually very uh, you know went, went, underwent a revolutionary transformation, as it were, uh, through the period of the 1970s and 1980s to to evolve a completely different uh, value regime, uh, and this transition uh, was engineered in part through the crisis of deindustrialization. Of uh, the Rust Belt, uh, the the industrialization of the of the Sun Belt, and the development of the American West, it, all these kinds of things were 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 were, were going on. Now, this uh, situation is a, a I think a, a one which which also then started to evolve of saying, well, is it is it possible that we can have just one value regime uh, around around the whole world? And this was, if you like, the job of some of the multinational institutions, the IMF, the International Bank of Settlements, uh, the World Bank to a lesser degree, but uh, but the like, and, and of course the WTO. Uh, and the attempt to reduce uh, tariff barriers to the and, and and reduction of transport costs to make actually uh, something closer to uh, a single value regime, but a single value regime does not seem to have worked very well, even if it ever came about, which it, which, it, which it really did not. And I think that then what this meant was that the world started to be carved up into other kinds of regimes. So you have the European Union, uh, you have uh, NAFTA, uh, you have CAFTA, you have the proposal on the, 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 the Pacific uh, uh, Agreement and, and also the Atlantic Agreement and it seemed to me that this is actually a very interesting development in the global economy which we ought to look at uh, more carefully because actually this development is not about free trade uh, as it's generally uh, presented in the press and elsewhere it's really about uh, trying to secure uh, certain uh, parts of the territorial configurations which are can be part of some sort of coherent value regime. Uh, the European Union is an ov- obvious example of that. Uh, the European Union uh, is an attempt to build uh, a structure uh, and eventually with, of course with a single currency and all the rest of it which is uh, going to uh, provide the possibility of Uh, a coherent value regime structure on a much broader basis than than a single state. The problem however with the European regime, and I think this is very important, is that within that regime there are hegemonic configurations. And there's no question that the main beneficiary of uh, the euro and the eurozone has been Germany. Uh, Germany has managed uh, to enhance its position very dramatically through the advent of the euro, whereas uh, southern European countries have essentially been drained dry of value so that the value regime, in this case, is of of great uh, advantage uh, to to Germany. In particular, the exchange rate of the euro is much lower than it would be if you were trading in German marks, so that Germany is favored in selling its high-tech equipment to China and all the rest of it because uh, because the euro is, is kept down by the, by the fact that they have countries like Greece and and Portugal and Italy and all the rest of it within the euro. But I wanted also to, to point out that one of the things that started to happen with the WTO which I think is interesting is that the WTO was something that was pushed very hard by the United States And it was pushed very hard to try to create a free trade regime which forced most countries to sign up to the WTO on pain of being excluded uh, from global trade. So you find smaller countries were given the option of joining and being fleeced or, or not joining and being excluded. So what do you choose? I mean, and so most of them uh, chose to join and consequently started to get fleeced. But actually, one or two things happened which were highly negative for the United States. Several judgments from the WTO came out against the United States. And that led to uh, the United States starting not to like the WTO. And actually, very interesting, in the Senate approval of the WTO legislation, uh, there was an interesting phrase in which it said the Senate reserved the right to ignore any decision of the WTO that the Senate didn't like, which is a fantastic way to actually, uh, you know, ratify a treaty. Uh, but they found several decisions which the world doesn't like, so the, the, the United States is not very happy with the WTO. So that's one of the reasons why the United States has uh, proposed something like the Trans-Pacific Agreement. Since that's in the news, let me tell you something about what's involved uh, in that. Um, If I can find it, I'll write it down here. The... uh, the main, the main thing here is that uh, this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this agreement incorporates uh, the, a number of countries, the US, Japan, and Canada, and Australia, uh, they're the main ones, and then uh, the smaller economies like Mexico, Malaysia, Chile, Vietnam, and Peru. Uh, but they only account for 8% of the activity within the proposed uh, uh, Trans-Pacific Agreement. Now, my argument here would be that the Trans-Pacific Agreement is really an attempt by the U.S. to create a particular value regime, one that will stop the decline in its market share of global trade at others' expense, while counteracting weakening economic growth and the profitability at home. In 1985, economies in the proposed uh, TPP countries accounted for 54% of world GDP. By 2014, this had dropped to 36%. This is a very serious drop-off. From 1984 to 2014, the U.S. share of world GDP fell from 34% to 23%. In the same period, the U.S. share of world merchandise trade dropped from 15% to 11%. So, the the TPP is not some great free trade agreement, arrangement, but an agreement by a group of advanced economies with a fringe of developing countries whose share in world GDP has been significantly declining to keep others out, in particular to keep China out, and to keep European capital out. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a moment because one of the points about this agreement was that it does not in any way benefit labor in any of those countries. All of the benefits of this agreement would flow to capital not to labor. So when Trump says he's going to dissolve this agreement he's actually uh, dissolving something that will be of great benefit uh, to US capital. And guess who is stepping into the breach to say well if you're not going to do it we're going to do it. China. So China is stepping into the breach and kind of says we are going to set up a, free, a, a similar kind of trade trade zone. So that uh, so here, here you have here you have a very interesting geo economic geopolitical jousting going on to try and carve up the world into distinctive value regimes. And in the case of the Trans Pacific Agreement, clearly the United States would aim I suspect to the exactly the same role as China, as, as, as Germany did in the Eurozone which is to use this as a way of absolutely sucking value out of uh, those other regimes to the degree that it was able uh, to, to do so. And I think again uh, when, we, when we look at this uh, I think uh, the same will be said of uh, many of the other agreements which the United States has tried to build. Uh, since it became disillusioned with the WTO, it's negotiated things like uh, the Central America Free Trade uh, Association, CAFTA. Uh, it's already had a, a, a sort of bilateral agreement with Chile, uh, which actually is, is, is a brilliant way to, to, to prevent the Chileans from joining Mercosur, uh, uh, which is the Latin American rather weak version of trying to create a coherent value uh, uh, regime, uh, in the, mainly in the southern cone. So these, these, pro, these processes, uh, which are going on in, in the world right now, are, are dynamic and transforming, and they're not all that they seem. And I think particularly the way in which the Trans-Pacific Agreement is being presented as uh, something that was uh, against the American worker, well that's true, but then uh, the point was that it was all uh, in favor of uh, American corporate uh, uh, interests in the same way that the uh, Trans-European uh, the, the European agreement was essentially designed to try to give American corporations easier access uh, to the uh, uh, to the uh, the eurozone. Now, um, let me go back then to, however, to the, the 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 way in which we might interpret this in relationship to Marx's. Uh, Uh, theory of uh, capital accumulation and and the like. Now, he had uh, uh, come across this sort of uh, questions uh, at various uh, various points uh, in his analysis. And in volume one of Capital, uh, he uh, actually takes up uh, the question of where... uh, uh, of what happens w- w- when there's trade between uh, different nation states and and here's and, and he does the, a little bit the same in volume in, in volume 2 but let me uh, read you a little bit of what he says um Uh, I mean, Marx had to recognize that the value of labor power varied from country to country. And, and it depended upon, he put it this way, the price and extent of the prime necessaries of life as naturally and historically developed, the cost of training the laborers, the part played by the labor of women and children, the productiveness of labor, its extensive and intensive magnitude. The more intense the national labor, produces in the same time more value which expresses itself in more money. The law of value, he says, is here modified by national differences in wages. So he's clearly uh, amenable to the idea that the law of value uh, should be transformed. and this law value is modified uh, by geographical variations in the length, intensity, productivity, and porosity of the working day. Uh, Different productivities of labor according to natural differences, cheap food from more fertile land, the different definition of necessities according to natural and cultural situation, the (coughs) dynamics of class struggles mean that the equalization of the rate of profit will not be accompanied by an equalization of the rate of exploitation between countries. And here's his thing. The favored country recovers more labor in exchange for less labor. Although this difference, this excess, is pocketed as in any exchange between capital and labor by a certain class. And you don't have to think very far to guess which one. Here, says Marx, the law of value undergoes essential modification. The relationship between labor days of different countries may be similar to that existing between skilled complex labor and unskilled simple labor within a a country. In this case, the richer country exploits the poorer one, even where the latter gains by the exchange. Now, this is a very important idea. And it's this, and it's like the theory of relative surplus value. Because in the theory of relative surplus value, You don't have a situation in which the standard of living of labor is necessarily declining. You can have a situation where the standard of living of labor is actually rising very slowly but the rate of exploitation is increasing uh, even faster. Because again that's the point about relative surplus value, that you're increasing the share of value produced going to capital and if there's a tremendous increase increase in productivity which increases that share very dramatically then part of that share can go to labor but the majority of it goes to capital so uh, if you get say uh, hundred dollars of uh, of surplus value worth of surplus value uh, coming because of the increase in productivity you might allow 20 of it to go to labor but you still get the 80 that goes to capital So what Marx is saying here, this is the kind of relationship that can start to exist between richer and poorer countries. These are the sorts of special factors that prevent, as he says, any leveling out of values by labor time and even even the leveling out of cost prices by a general rate of profit between different countries. Now the mechanism here is important and the mechanism that Marx is using to talk about this is the equalization of the rate of profit. And one of the things that he does in the, f- in the sphere of distribution is to start to say that the equalization of the rate of profit actually redistributes surplus value um, within the capitalist class among capitalist producers. That it actually redistributes surplus value from those capitalists who are producing in labor-intensive structures, and I- i.e. producing a lot of value because a lot of labor is employed that, that value, much of that value is redistributed uh, to those capitalists who employ very little labor but a lot of capital. So capital-intensive industries effectively get uh, subsidized by labor-intensive industries. And if labor-intensive industries are located in Bangladesh and capital-intensive industries are located in the United States, then you can see what the redistribution is going to be between nations, and so Marx is actually using the same argument here as he as he does uh, in uh, the equalization of the rate of profit. Now, you here have to put into a perspective some of the riddles that Marx is is trying to resolve. And the first riddle, uh, which comes up in in Capital Volume One, is this: how there's a system based on equality of exchange, equality of value in exchange, actually end up producing a surplus value. And this was his riddle. I mean, if everything cha- exchanges at its value, then, uh, then where does the surplus value come from? Well, his answer is it comes from uh, the commodification of labor power and the fact that labor power is able to produce value and can be induced uh, to produce more value than it itself has uh, by having to work you know, ten hours a day instead of five hours a day and all the rest of it. So that riddle is solved in Volume 1 uh, through a theory of exploitation of labor in Volume 1 of Capital at the point of valorization. So you have that point of valorization in the general circulation of capital which has this riddle of how come you know, surplus value is produced when without offending the, the rule that everything should exchange at its value. <coughs> at the point of distribution, however, we now have another riddle which Marx has actually uh, unraveled, which is that uh, the equalization of the rate of profit as a mechanism uh, redistributes value uh, from uh, the, the labor-intensive producers to the capital-intensive producers. And this redistribution also violates the, 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 the rule that econ, you know, that uh, uh, commodities should exchange at their value. In fact, what Marx does is to say that no, <coughs> commodities no longer exchange at their value, they exchange at their price of production, which is something different from, from, from value. <coughs> so there are two points in this general circulation process where there are major redistributions which occur. The first one is from capital, is from labor to capital. And the second one is redistributions within the capitalist class. And this redistribution is very significant because, uh, like I say, it uh, subsidizes capital-intensive industries and thereby also, by the same token as Marx is pointing out here, it subsidizes uh, the capital-intensive countries. So the inference uh, I would make is that the social labor we do for others in one part of the world is different both qualitatively and quantitatively from that done in another, and that in the event of systemic exchanges between different regional value regimes, The social labor in one region may end up subsidizing and supporting the economy and lifestyle of another. High value producing regimes, by which we mean labor intensive production like Bangladesh, may be supporting high productivity capital intensive regimes such as the US. And this turns out to be a very common structural combination, even within industrial structures the know-how and technology of the United States combines with the labor power of China or Mexico or Bangladesh to the relative advantage of the USA, even as the actual producers receive some developmental benefits. In other words, it's not as if no benefits accrue uh, to any of those countries like China, Mexico or Bangladesh. They get something. They get their you know, 20% or whatever it is. Uh, but... Uh, The other side of it is that, of course, uh, the the capital-intensive part of the operation gets the 80%. Even more dramatically, going back to the notion of anti-value and uh, what I call the debt-bottling plants of uh, New York and London, uh, what they, in effect, do is produce anti-value. And then they look for redemption of that value in the factories of Bangladesh and Shenzhen. So this argument has, I think, some far-reaching implications for the way in which value gets produced and distributed within the global economy. That its production point is not the same as its appropriation point, uh, and there are these redistributive mechanisms uh, which are channeling uh, more and more value to privileged sectors of the economy. And I always thought it was very fascinating that in uh, uh, the hearings about what happened in 2000, the collapse of 2007 and 2008, they, they hauled uh, Lloyd Blankfein, who's CEO of Goldman Sachs, to the uh, to the Senate committee to define the, the bank's role, and he was asked, well, what does the bank actually do? And he replied that it, it, it was, uh, his mission was to do God's work. <laughs> <laughs> and I, this always mystified me until I thought about this, uh, that I think he was thinking of a, of, of a material as opposed to faith-based interpretation of Matthew 25, which says, for unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance... But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath, <laughs> which is exactly what Goldman Sachs is about uh, in the material uh, kind of kind of sense. so this is the law of capitalist redistribution, uh, as it's laid out in effect in volume three of uh, of capital now. I'm suggesting then a certain plausibility about the existence of uh, these regional value regimes. And I would support this also with the following uh, commentary. That if you look at the way in which the global monetary system is set up, there are distinctive currency regimes in the world. And uh, money is supposed to be a representation of value. So the question would be how to to interpret all these different representations of value uh, which are local and regional and all the rest of it, how to interpret them in the absence of the idea that there are actually regional value regimes. Now Marx himself had very interesting things to say about uh, the, 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 the money structures. Uh, again, he does a good, uh, good analysis in, in uh, Volume 1, and he, and he puts it this uh, in the following way, that he, he suggests there's a big gap that exists between the global money commodities, which is gold and silver, and the many local fiat and paper monies that exist to facilitate ease of exchange and which are, as he says, an attribute proper to the state. So these are state monies. And then this is what he says. When money leaves the domestic sphere of circulation, it loses the local functions and falls back into its original form as precious metal in the shape of bullion. In world trade, commodities develop their value universally. Their independent value form thus confronts them here too as world money. It is in the world market that money first functions to its full extent as the commodity whose natural form is also that directly social form of realization of human labor in the abstract. Its mode of existence becomes adequate to its concept. Thus, the different national uniforms worn at home by gold and silver as coins are taken off again when they appear in the world market. There is a separation between the internal or national spheres of commodity circulation, and its universal sphere, the world market. And it's very clear that the true value of commodities lies on the world market, and its most adequate money form of representation is gold. So you have this idea that true value isn't, is, is it going to be experienced in the world market, and that true value is then represented by this one... Uh, commodity, in fact, do, usually two, gold and silver, but for the sake of argument, let's just say it's gold. So what, this is what leads Marx to sort of argue that uh, value is singular and universal, because it's universal to the world market. And the justification for this is that it's only on the world market that that gold can perform its proper function, which is as a material representation of value. Now remember, value is immaterial. It's a social relation. It needs a material representation. You cannot represent value by bits of paper, because it's one immaterial representation representing another immaterial representation, in which case you say, what's the point? The point for Marx was to say there had to be some material representation of value, and that material representation was going to be gold. But gold is totally inefficient with respect to the circulation of commodities. Therefore it became necessary for the state to come up with bits of paper and all the coins and all the rest of it. And the imperative to reduce transaction costs led to the creation of lots of localized money, which were mere symbols of value. Uh, now the difference is that these form, other forms of money were open to human manipulation. The state could just print more bits of paper. Or, you know, uh, even worse, if it's IOUs, you could just write IOUs and spread them around any way you, you liked. Uh, So there were lots of monies of account and and other forms of money which, in Marx's view, were totally unreliable as representations of value. Uh, And uh, particularly the complicated systems of debt and repayment, which uh, often involved no actual change of hands of money at all until some agreed upon date of settlement, gold, he says, acted as a solid and reliable material pivot, upon which all the other fictitious and otherwise uncontrollable forms of money turned. So gold played this crucial role. And and it was important because gold is uh, a, a particular obviously non-oxidizable metal and has it's, you can assay it and it has all these kinds of qualities and, and, and the, the, the like. Uh, but gold also, uh, most of the, the gold in the world is already above ground. Uh, it can't uh, be augmented very much. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a very solid, stable kind of... I mean, if you want something of the sort that Marx is saying has to be there, then gold is obviously the perfect representative of value. The problem, however, with capitalism is that over time, gold has become less and less relevant. Uh, and actually was totally abandoned as a standard of value from the, the 1970s onwards. Now, I think that this is, a, is, is a, a very, very important moment in the history of capital. Uh, the abandonment of the metallic base to the, to the, the global money system. Uh, Marx actually argued on more than one occasion that gold could never, ever be replaced. It could never, ever be abolished. But plainly, he was wrong. It has been. So we have a, a conundrum, as it were, then to say, well, what, how, does, how does world money work in the absence of this material representation of value, which is gold? And how do we actually represent value faithfully when the only choices are all of these uh, you know, nutty money systems and local monies and, and, and debts and, and fictitious capitals and all the rest of it? How do we, how do we deal with that? So value even on the world market is now represented by money forms that have no material commodity base. Uh, and these money forms are obviously subject to ma- you know human manipulation. Uh, central banks uh, engage in things like uh, quantitative easing and they add zeros to the money supply at whim. Uh, they're not constrained And and that's why the gold bugs still exist. They kind of say, you know, the the ruination of capital has been the abandonment of the the gold system. But the gold system was abandoned for very good reasons, that it was totally dysfunctional, given the levels of growth and the rapidity of growth of world trade. So the restoration of a gold standard would be disastrous. But then at the same time, you're facing potential disaster by having monetary forms which are subject to human manipulation, which are supposed to represent value when, you know, on, 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 on the world market. Now, in a, f- in a sense what happened, of course, is that one of these currencies became the global reserve currency, and that was the U.S. dollar. But then there's the question of what does the U.S. dollar represent? And how much... Uh, does the world actually accept the idea that the dollar should be uh, the global currency? And In fact, there are several different proposals uh, about this, uh, market basket of currencies, the world around, and, and so on, and the IMF drawing rights, and so on, so there are various alternative proposals. But in effect, what we're saying here is that the US dollar is pinned to its total output of goods and services within the United States. That, that the material value which underpins the dollar is the material productivity of the U.S. economy. So that's, in effect, what, would, what you know, people try to do, is to suggest that that is the case. Now, that requires that there be a central bank which recognizes that, and in recognizing that, is willing to avoid inflationary incidents and all the rest of it. And what you see is something very interesting in U.S. history, is that after the abandonment of the gold standard in the 1970-73 period, well, 68 to 73, what happened at the end of the 1970s? Huge inflation. Inflation in the United States was up around 17-20%. And everybody starts going crazy about this inflation. And they recognize that inflation is a big problem. And they look back at the Weimar Republic and they looked at the German Bundesbank, which was kind of saying, inflation, no, no, we've, we've been there, we don't want to have anything to do with that. So there was a scare at the end of the 1970s that this paper currency, the US dollar, which was now representing the value was out of control, and it had to be brought back under control. How was it brought back under control? It was brought back by what's called the Volcker shock, because what Volcker did was to simply raise the interest rates way up to about 19%, something like that, you know, maybe not as high as that, but very, very high. And, and that, of course, immediately froze economic activity. There was a recession. Unemployment in the country soared in the early years of the Reagan administration. Did, there was a Reagan recession, which was engineered. And it was precisely about breaking the inflationary cycle, suppressing wages. And to suppress wages, you had to suppress suppress the unions. So they did, you know, the, the, uh, the PATCO, the air traffic controllers strike and things like that. Uh, and at the same time, you start to loosen up the possibility of, of monetary uh, cons- consolidation at, uh, at, at, the global, at the global level. So since then, uh, in effect, uh, we've been at the mercy at the world's central banks. And what central bank policy is in terms of pinning down what is... Uh, the representation of value on on the world market, but at the same time as this is going on, we actually see there is competition going on for for you know what would be the most significant currency to deploy at certain historical uh, periods. During the 1980s and 1990s, by far the most productive economies at that time were those of Germany and Japan, West Germany and Japan. And therefore, the Deutsche Mark and the Yen, people started to say, well, I'd rather hold Deutsche Marks and Yen than the U.S. dollar, because the U.S. dollar is going to hell, and so why should I hold that? So what you then see is a a sort of a a sudden competition of regional uh, currency regimes to say, holding their hands up and saying, hey, I want (laughs) to represent value in the world market. And another says, hey, and then you get these negotiations, complex negotiations, about can a market basket of currencies work uh, in which we have a composite uh, way of uh, valuing things in the world market. But this is the the situation. But the fundamental thing I want to argue here is that if the currency regimes can be disaggregated and structured around value relations uh, on a regional local basis then why would we say that the value cannot have the same configuration? Why would we not say that value uh, can also uh, be understood in terms of distinctive value regimes which are uh, in interaction with each other and through interaction with each other are constantly hovering around the creation of some alternative um, uh, general measure, universal measure, of, of value on the world market. So this is the situation. It seems to me that is, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, something that needs needs to be looked at. The other thing that I would want to look at here is something which is uh, takes us into a completely a different territory. You may remember that in the diagram I, I put up, uh, I had a kind of a. a an area at the top which is called uh, the, the, the production and, and, uh, of human nature and at the bottom called the production of nature. Because it's fairly clear throughout the history of value regimes that uh, the different uh, free gifts of nature and of human nature Um, have very distinctive regional variations. That when capital began uh, to become ascendant, it was confronted with different configurations of, for instance, natural resource configurations. It it confronted different cultural populations with different skills, aptitudes, and the like. And without going into this in any great detail, I I would like to suggest that at this point, uh, capital um, is actually going to be highly dependent upon these free gifts of nature and of human nature uh, for its further development and for its further advancement. And there are various ways in which we can set that up. And the most interesting way for me is to actually go back to Marx's theory of rent. Because Marx has two theories of rent. Well, not? Well, sorry, he has, he has three forms of rent, but one of the forms is divided into two, and this is the one I really want to look at, which is the notion of differential rent. Differential rent arises because uh, of certain advantages, and in agriculture it's very clear, of fertility and location. That is, that if you have a plot of land with, you know, which is excellent uh, in terms of its fertility and its location, uh, you're going to get superior productivity from that land compared to everybody else. In other words, you're going to earn an excess profit. And this is what Marx called differential rent, because he said, you know, if you want to equalize conditions of profitability, you cannot have a situation where certain plots of land have a permanent a permanent as opposed to a temporary form of excess profit. Uh, in the theory of relative surplus value, there is a temporary form of excess profit which arises because you have a superior technology. But others can take a superior technology and adopt your superior technology and soon that form of advantage is, is dissolved as other people catch up with their technologies. But you can't do that with a piece of fertile land. You can, I mean, you can go and try and find a place that's equally fertile and a good location, but by and large, the, 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 the advantage of that fertility and location is a permanent advantage, which Marx says, well, is going to have to be taxed away. Uh, by the landlord in order to create conditions of equal competition between all the producers on the land. So this is the theory of differential rent 1. Differential rent 2 arises not because of natural fertility and location, but because investments in the land create an alternative kind of advantage that you drain a field. Uh, You fertilize the field. Uh, You uh, build infrastructures of certain kinds. You change the location arrangements by building transport networks or something of this kind. So if you start to look, differential rent, too, becomes something which is actually uh, created by investments, created by fixed capital investments of an independent kind in the physical environment. And that this is about, then, the production of nature. But it's not only about the production of nature, because these sorts of investments can also go uh, to investments in population. And these investments can be long-lasting. That is, fields that were cleared in the Middle Ages are still cleared. And once they're cleared, they're cleared, and they can be kept cleared the original investment that goes into uh, a lot of New York City was done in the 19th century. It needs to be renewed, but it's still with us. And it's long ago been amortized in terms of its actual... So, in a sense, it's become part of what we call second nature. So the second nature becomes a source of differential rent. And that second nature is something which is produced. And it's produced by human beings, and in particular, the more capital became hegemonic, the more it was produced by capital. So, capital actually produces the conditions of nature and human nature that are appropriate for its uh, to to facilitate. Uh, further accumulation at a particular historical moment. On the other hand, what we also find is that those requirements, and this gets back to use values, the use values which it requires change depending upon technology. Once upon a time, early on in capital, access to to, uh, to a waterfall was terribly important. This was a major form of power and, of course, that's where all the textile mills are, and on the fall line, using the water resources. So this became terribly important. Along comes the steam engine, nobody's interested in waterfalls anymore. So natural resources are not natural at all. They're actually cultural, economic, technical appraisals. And as technology changes, so the demand and, and, uh, of access and the nature of resources changes. Uranium was not a sensible, was not an interesting resource until nuclear power came along. So the resource base is constantly being changed both by the use value requirements of capital, but it's also being changed by the way in which capital invests in actually creation of built environments. And those built environments can also become barriers. Because once you've built them, you have to maintain them, and it becomes rather sclerotic. So you often find capital prefers to move to Greensfield sites rather than to older sites. And in fact, early capitalism was just like that. It's no accident that early capitalism in Britain did not develop in the merchant c- cities of Britain, places like Norwich, Bristol, uh, and the like it did not develop there. Where did it develop? It developed in little villages with names like Birmingham, with names like Manchester, Oldham, and all Leeds. So it went to those places because it didn't like the monopoly power of the merchant capitalists in those merchant capitalist cities, and it didn't like the guild organization of labor. So I went to a Greenfield site where it had none of those regulatory things and just got on with, you know, and built its factories and all this kind of stuff with nobody interfering with them. So that kind of thing is going on all of the time. But, this, but here I want to suggest that actually value regimes are built. They're not simply there. They don't, don't simply evolve by accident. They're, they are built, and they're built around the production of nature and the production of human nature. And the production of human nature is actually also an investment. One of the biggest advantages that the United States has had in world trade for the last two generations has been a vast investment in higher education. That the vast investment in higher education and the development of the research universities has been one of the big competitive advantages which continues after all the investment has been long been gone in the 1960s, even to the point right now where you're actually seeing this cutting back on higher education, which is crazy, but at this moment you see something else going on, which is, what are the Chinese doing? Investing vast amounts in higher education. And, and actually really trolling the world for talent to bring. In other words, they're doing very much what the US did in the 1960s and they're also doing it in terms of the integration of the whole of the US economy of the whole Chinese economy through the development of high speed train networks and high speed you know automobile highways and, and infrastructures and all the rest of it in other words in other words you're making a value regime by conscious infrastructural investment and I think that this is, a, this is a, again, something which is very, uh, you know, very, very significant to the understanding of how value regimes develop. Because the fact is that the value regimes which, is already, the value which has already been embedded in the land, in the form of fixed capital investments in the United States, is far, far superior to anything you would find in Africa, or anything you'll find in Latin America even though you know the New York subway is crappy and falling apart. So these these kinds of these kinds of issues uh, are about trying, trying to create a nature and a human nature, a second nature and a human nature, which is actually uh, convenient uh, to certain forms of capital accumulation. The result is that competition between value regimes on the world stage is very much affected by the degree to which these forms of, of, of investment have all been made, not just simply yesterday, but over a long period of time. That the evolution of global, uh, the global economy is actually taken up with what we were talking about last time, which is about fixed capital investment, going into the land, building the land in a certain way, so that you see perfectly well Uh, how capital can continue to accumulate on the basis of those free gifts. And they're free gifts in the following sense. They're not free gifts to capital because, as Marx points out, the differentials which are involved here, the the, the differential rents that can be captured become then the basis by which the rentier class starts to justify its existence under capitalism. Because Marx had a problem about why would capital, industrial capital, tolerate having a rentier class that was going to extract rents? Why would it do so? And one of the reasons was that the extraction of differential rents, by the mechanisms I've talked about, actually equalizes the basis of competition between capital and prevents, if you like, the monopoly power of that those few producers who collar the most fertile land in the best locations and who can therefore earn excess profits forevermore. A tax away those excess profits and that's fine. The difficulty of course then with Marx's analysis is he presumes that because because there is a justification for uh, these uh, differential rents to be extracted you then actually legitimize a landlord class, which doesn't sit there and say, oh, I'm only going to take that, uh, which would actually equalize the rate of profit for everybody I'm going to do my good job for, for capital uh, no, they sit there and as an interest group they will actually take as much as they can and so we get the problem of the relationship then between rentiers and industrialists, uh, which is a very important issue so the, what's the conclusion then that I want to draw here I would want to draw the conclusion that value regimes are actively produced. Value regimes uh, are constantly in transformation. You can't isolate them uh, into fixed territories, except that. Yeah, okay, building, you know, NAFTA or building the Eurozone does isolate a certain territory within which the value regime uh, is, is protected to some degree. But the world structure is such that differential and, and relative spaces of, of, of trade are such that you cannot uh, imagine any of those value regimes being isolated. And, in fact, uh, what you'll find is that, yeah, the co- combination of, uh, of, of, say, U.S. know-how and Mexican labor <clears throat> doesn't preclude, you know, Chinese parts and African raw materials uh, being also incorporated into a product which is made in Mexico and sold in the United States. The, the, you know, the, we, we get those kind of value chain structures which now, now exist. But that it is possible uh, to recognize some of the modifications that Marx was beginning to introduce uh, into value structures and those modi- these modifications have to do with the way in which there are effective redistributions of value through uh, the equalization of the rate of profit as well as redistributions of value through uh, the exploitation of living labor in production. And in that sense you can reconcile understandings of some of these Uh, competitions that are going on uh, in terms of regional value regimes and these regional value regimes uh, therefore can be embedded in the general theory of capital accumulation uh, which Marx was was, uh, designing. Uh, He hinted at various points as to how that could be done uh, particularly in in, uh, Volume 3 of Capital and points in the Grundrisse uh, but this is one of the pieces of work that, that uh, uh, we need to do, uh, particularly in re- since uh, his assumption that gold could never be replaced as the global money commodity. Uh, plainly, has not uh, held up. And, but on the other hand, the fact that it is not held up suggests that this is a, a, a center of weakness. Uh, within the global economy, which uh, is something which we should be deeply concerned about uh, as we go forward. Well, I think I've said enough. So well, let us have some, any comments or questions you might have. There are other issues I might want to talk about, but let's uh, throw it open for some, some uh, questions.